Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, from a very warm San Francisco on April the 30th. We're in the heart of spring, and it's springtime, not for Hitler in San Francisco in the Bay Area, but springtime for tech. Things are really, uh, to, to quote a Wall Street Journal piece, big tech is surging and so surging that it's even stunning Wall Street that was always fairly bullish on tech. Um, Amazon profits are up ridiculously. Their, their, their first quarter sales uh, of the e-commerce giant hit $108 billion. That's just for one quarter of the first quarter of 2021. Um, Google sees its, uh, its revenue jump 34%. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz, the biggest venture capitalist out here, uh, is planning a new $1 billion cryptocurrency VC fund. Uh, and venture capital generally, even outside crypto, uh, to quote the Investor's Business Daily, is flooding into technology companies at record levels. Um, so 2021 and indeed 2020 is turning out to be the year where tech really did change the world. And to quote Mark Andreessen, the uh, the venture capitalist behind Andreessen Horowitz, the moment that software really did eat the world. So what does this mean if you're, a, if you're a founder? What does this mean if you want to really not so much make a fortune, which of course we all do, but radically change the world? My guest today is a venture capitalist and entrepreneur and has a new book out on what he calls super founders, what data reveals about billion-dollar startups. He himself um, is a partner at DCVC, and uh, he is speaking to us from San Mateo uh, in California, just down the road from San Francisco, Ali Tamaseb, uh, VC author, I don't know, Ali, would it be fair to call you um, a super VC, a super author, a super founder, um, or are you just Ali? Glad to be here, Andrew. Well, let's, let's see what the future holds for me, and hopefully I'll be a super VC as well. Well, you're super in my eyes. You've written this very interesting book, Super Founders. Um, the claim to fame of the book, at least, in terms of its marketing, um, is that you claim or your publisher claims that you spent thousands of hours manually amassing what may be the largest data set ever collected on startups. Uh, Ali, what is a data set? What does that mean? Not all of our viewers, I think, will be familiar with that word, a data set. Of course. It's, it's a, basically a collection of data. And um, I spent, and that's correct, I spent thousands of hours over the past four years, collecting, uh, basically manually trying to understand and, and quantify a number of elements, exactly 65 elements on every startup that was started in the past 15 years that became a billion dollar outcome. And also I collected the same data elements on companies that raised venture capital funding, but did not become uh, billion dollar outcomes. Most of them died or you know remained small outcomes. And 
the, the purpose of the book is to use data and real evidence to see what what was different between them rather than um, all these fairy tales or stories that we may otherwise hear. And the goal of the book is to dispel a lot of myth uh, that's been around for decades and decades uh, in this startup ecosystem in Silicon Valley about what makes for a successful founder, what makes for a successful company or idea. Uh, many of our viewers will, of course, be very familiar with The Social Network, the movie about startups uh, starring Jesse Eisenberg as a young uh, Mark Zuckerberg at, at Harvard University, shoeless, uh, looking for girlfriends online. Uh, apparently, uh, the, the, the movie was borrowed by from Ben Mesrick's uh, 2009 book, The Accidental Be uh, Billionaires. Is that movie, and we all know the movie, um, uh, Ali, is that movie entirely mythological when it comes to the typical founder? Right. So I love that movie, by the way. It's, it's very well done, although it might not reflect on what the reality of what Facebook was. But I think that movie and a lot of other stories like that, the stories of Steve Jobs and the stories of uh, Bill Gates, what, what makes itself to the popular lexicon of entrepreneurship makes people believe in certain ways and even you know some people in the media and some journalists try to show stories like that and and the particular story there is is you know a person a founder who was an ivy league student and dropped out in their you know junior year or freshman year uh to start a company and follow uh, a la zuckerberg or even um steve jobs who dropped out of reed or bill gates who bill dropped gates. out of harvard so all these uh, uh, highly educated, smart, wealthy, young white man, right? Correct, correct. And turns out, you know, that's that's real and that exists, but that's only 4% of all the billion dollar companies that get started. So the other 96% are not like that. There are more PhD holders than dropouts. There are as many founders who had gone to schools that didn't even rank in the top 100 as those that went on to top 10 schools. So there's a lot of, when you look at the data, it, it reveals a lot of insights about the other 96% or that basically the famous stories and we have a narrative bias that what we hear more commonly, we think that's the reality, but it might be just a piece of reality. It might be 4% of the reality. You know, as a venture capitalist, I see a lot of uh, companies and I see a lot of founders from different stages of their lives and different types of backgrounds. And I've seen many of these actually you know, become successful as well, including some of my investments. And that's that's where I thought, okay, there, there's a there's a there's a, there's a difference between what I see in media and or what has shaped my thoughts as a you know previous entrepreneur and what I see actually become successful. And that's what prompted me to start collecting this data and see is there actually something that data tells us about how these companies were different uh, from the rest, from the ones that did not succeed. Uh, Ali, as I mentioned at the beginning uh, of the show, um, Mark Andreessen, the original boy king of Silicon Valley, the co-founder of uh, Netscape, the guy who got this whole insanity going in the, in the early 1990s, um, is planning a billion-dollar cryptocurrency fund. He's not only a, perhaps a, he's certainly a super entrepreneur, and he's in, 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 and undoubtedly a super VC too. Um, your book is full of interviews. You didn't interview Andreessen. I'm sure he's a difficult guy to get hold of. Um, he's always seemed to me a very peculiar 
fellow. I don't know if you know him. I've read a lot about him. He's obviously brilliant, but also um, psychologically unusual. Your focus on data doesn't really focus on psychology, does it? On, uh, on, 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 on individual traits and quirks of a guy, uh, of a guy like Andreessen who can't simply be understood in terms of data points, or am I wrong? Right. Obviously, I have a lot of respect for, uh, for Mark Andreessen and, and the folks at, at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, no, it's, it's hard to collect uh, data on, on psychology, right? You can't deterministically test people or even get access to people. And a lot of these are historical. So the data focuses on things that you can, you can quantify. You can say, you know, this person worked at this company for this many years and worked at this other company for this many years. Or the idea when it was started, the market size was this, or the number of competitors was this, or their fundraising patterns. So I focused on data that is uh, collectible and across you know, a large scale. This is not just about one company, it's about hundreds of companies uh, that I collected the data. And you mentioned interviews, obviously the book comes with a lot of interviews with, with a number of great founders, founders of companies like Zoom, Instacart, GitHub, Nest, uh, Cloudflare, uh, and also, you know, investors uh, like, you know, Super Angel Investor a lot, Gail, uh, Alfred Lin of Sequoia Capital, Keith Boy of Founders Fund. Um, so it, it, it adds basically these stories. My goal with the interviews was, was to add the stories about companies that either represent the data or are outliers to the data to add to these stories, because obviously data may show some trends. But my goal with the book is to reduce the bias and say there is no one way to become a billion dollar founder and there's no proxy rules that we should take. And that's that's why I interviewed people who are outliers to the data and also people who represent the data. Ali, all books, whether they're on business or technology or, um, or politics or even love, they all have theories of history, theories of, 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 of how we turn out as we do. Um, and, and I think your, the, the theory of your book is revealed, and it often is, by the, um, by the first quote, by the if not the dedication, uh, the, 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 the first words in the book. Your first words are a quote from the novelist Chuck uh, Palniuk, um, and, and I want to quote them because it's a fascinating quote. I'm not sure if I agree, but I think it, it summarizes your, your view of the world. Uh, Palniuk. Uh, wrote in Survivor, there are only patterns, patterns on top of patterns, patterns that affect other patterns, patterns hidden by patterns, patterns within patterns. If you watch close, his tr history does nothing but repeat itself. Um, what exactly is a pattern, Ali? Right. I think, you know, what a lot of people during history uh, it's the same thing about science. It's a lot of, you know, when we don't know about something, we say it's random. When we don't know about a scientific things that we have not discovered. And if you go historically and, and read the history of science, we just say, okay, that's, that's random. That's metaphysics. That's, you know, act of God. But when we, we understand the science and we, we, we study the history, then we understand oh, there's actually some patterns or there's actually something. So a pattern is... Uh, you know, are there specific things um, that you can follow to to match a certain thing? And and the book basically goes through. You know, there there are certain patterns that people think 
matters and the book is about dispelling them and also introducing a number of new patterns and a number of new insights that uh, based on data shows, you know, what, what would make you uh, more likely to succeed or what type of path you may want to follow. Is there anything in the world, Ali, outside data? Well, um, I, th- I like this, this uh, interesting quote. Uh, I don't remember the full thing, but it's basically, you know, uh, in God we trust, all else brings data. So uh, <laughs> we, we need, we need do you, data. Do you trust and God? Need... Do you personally trust God? Well, I, I guess that's, that's outside of the scope of this, uh, this interview and the book, but uh, I love data. <laughs> well, that's a good response. Uh, as, as you said, and as I said, this book is, is full of, of very rich stories. You, you've really done your legwork. So I thought what we could do is briefly go through some of the stories. Um, let's begin with uh, a character I'd never heard of, actually, before, uh, be- before reading your book, Enrique Duberga. Uh, uh, this guy who is... Uh, uh, he calls himself on Twitter a proud Brazilian in Silicon Valley and the co-CEO of Brex HQ. Uh, what does Enrique Duberga teach us or what can he teach us about billion-dollar startups? Why is he a super founder? What's so special about him? Of course. So this is, this is the first chapter when I talk about some of the backgrounds of the founders. And one of them is that age on its own does not matter. Like, being, being younger or being older, that by itself does not make anybody less or more likely uh, to become successful. And there's a lot of bias. At some points, the bias is on age, and we have ageism bias uh, towards older people. In previous times, it was against you know younger people. You don't have experience. You don't understand the space. So oh, what Enrique did, uh, he started the company Brex, uh, which recently raised that evaluation of uh, north of $7 billion. Uh, they create credit cards for small companies and startups. Um, when, when he was in Brazil, as a, as a young kid, as a teenager, uh, he started a uh, company, something like Stripe, something for financial management. Um, and that company you know, grew to a small scale. It was a small uh, but good outcome for Brazil. And he was super young. But that prepared him uh, when he came to the US and he started at Stanford uh, to see that, okay, maybe you know, I should start another company. But this time he wanted to do something uh, very different. So it started from uh, building virtual reality headsets, something very different. But after some time, he realized, okay, my expertise comes from, I understand, you know, financial technologies better. So he started uh, thinking about Brex and starting this company. And one thing that, you know, the book is trying to demystify is a lot of times uh, we think a lot of founders were mission driven and had a, uh, were solving a personal problem. And when you dig deep, you see, you know, a lot of these startup ideas, it was something else, it changed. And these are not necessarily pivots that happened after the company was formed. These are, you know, early just thinking about a variety of different ideas. But what makes uh, Enrique successful and his founder, you know, they were 19 or 20 when they started Brex. So they were super young and they were kind of representative of a smaller side of the data. They are one of those 4% uh, that is the modern, you know, 4%. Um, and what was interesting about them that although they started at 19 and they built a uh, $7 billion company now, they had a past uh, in financial technologies and they had tried something in Brazil and they had started a local company and got to got it to a certain scale. 
Um, and that's the main pattern that I recognize on a lot of these billion dollar startups that these are not overnight successes. Even, even when you have somebody, a 19 year old that started a billion dollar company, you dig deeper and see they did something else before. And it's, it's about that hustle. It's about, you know, a lot of things don't matter. These fairy tales about, uh, you know, your age or being technical, these kind of stuff don't matter. What matters is these successes don't happen overnight. And you may start a company when you're a teenager and, you know, that may fail. You may start another company after college uh, that may fail. You may get to a small scale of success. Maybe, you know, you sell your company for $10 million. And then that's the next step that, you know, practice makes perfect. You create a lot of connections. You create a lot, a lot of resources. And in your next step, you, you end up starting a billion dollars. And so there are, so to, to, to re-quote uh, Palahniuk, there are only patterns, patterns on top of patterns. Another pattern that you've exposed in your book, um, uh, uh, Ali, is the, the myth around founders' education. Uh, and you talk to a, a guy called Ari Beldegrun, um, an Israeli-American, a urologic oncologist, another highly successful uh, entrepreneur. What, what does uh, Beldegrun teach us about uh, a founder's education? For Very sure. briefly, because I, mean, I want to get through as many of the, the parables or stories in the book as possible. Of course. There are a lot of myths around um, founder education. And what the data showed was that on its own, again, education is not a factor. A, a small percentage, a single digit percentage would be dropouts, which is the famous story. But we have a lot of professors who end up starting billion dollar companies. We have a lot of PhDs. And a lot of investors may say, I don't want to invest in a professor. I don't want to invest in a PhD that only has done research and doesn't know how to start a company. And, and Ari has started, like he sold one company for $12 billion. Uh, the other company is worth you know, $5 billion now. And before that, he sold two companies for $500 million. So clearly a very, very successful person in the world of you know, oncology treatments and cancer drugs. And again, I think you see this kind of pattern is in his story that while he was a professor, he started these companies on the side and the initial ones were smaller successes, but at this time went on. Uh, and, you know, this is another thing about fundraising. You know, a lot of founders would struggle with fundraising. And, you know, as they build up this traction and as they build up their history, Ari Beldegrin, he raised $800 million for his last company in, in a couple months, which is un, unimaginable, unbelievable. Um, but, you know, as you, create, as you create these backgrounds and successes, this, these things become easier and easier. So there you have it. Uh, for all you academics out there watching from your little rooms, your little offices, there is a chance for you to break out of the university and become billionaires. Just copy Ari Beldegren. Um, another uh, founder that you use as a parable is about work experience. Uh, there's a guy called Nat Turner, who uh, is the co-founder of Flatiron Health, uh, Ali, who you say has no medical education at all, that you can start a company without really being that well-educated in the subject. Tell us about uh, the parable of Nate Turner. Yeah, so this Nat is the perfect example of this kind of pattern that I'm talking about in the book. He, you know, he started this pizza delivery company in college and it was like a, sold it for $100,000. Then with his co-founder, he started an advertising technology startup. 
And they spent like four years on that and they were lucky and you know, a lot of things worked out. Google acquired that company for I don't know, $20 million or something like that. And these two experiences prepared him and his co-founder, gave them a lot of credibility. And while they were at Google, they started thinking about a lot of different ideas. And what they settled on was, you know, let's do something for cancer. And they did not know anything, you know, they didn't have any medical background or stuff, but they had this, this Google, uh, as he says, you know, I, he even quotes, I, I quote him from the interview that if we didn't have that acquisition and we, if we didn't have that Google uh, card, business cards with us, this third company wouldn't, wouldn't be as successful. And Flatiron Health was a $2 billion acquisition by Roche. Um, and obviously they use this credibility to hire a lot of people with expertise in medical. And they spent two years just learning more than anybody else about the space, talking with surgeons, talking with oncologists, going to hospitals. So it's less about, you know, do, do you come from that industry and more about, do you know more about that industry than anyone else? Do you have the resources to go and talk and learn about a specific industry more than anyone else and, and start a company that, that would end up becoming successful? Uh, Ali, another company that's in the news uh, today is Instacart. There's some um, headlines on CNN Business about many, many people use uh, Instacart shoppers uh, over deactivated accounts. But the the founder or the co-founder of Instagram, Max Mullen, is in your book for other reasons. You say he's the super founder who met success on his second try. So you can, and there's a lot of mythology, the cult of failure in Silicon Valley, and that's something you seem to be suggesting is actually true, that it's not unusual to fail first. And even if you failed once or twice, you can still succeed second or third time around. What does Max Mullen teach us about this, Ali? Exactly. So I think in, in that chapter, I'm talking about a lot of these examples of company, founders with pr prior success and like large exits. I talk about Uber uh, and I talk about, you know, Travis Kalanick. Yeah, I knew Travis. He doesn't speak to me anymore, but uh, I knew Travis in the 90s when he'd failed two or three times, and he was actually quite charming then. I don't think he's quite as charming as he is now. <laughs> right. But but like both both founders of, of Uber, Garrett and, and Kalanick, they had sold companies, one of them for $19 million, the other one for $75 million before starting Uber. So, And a lot of people think, oh, somebody came up with an idea for an app that that, you know, that was a big success overnight, but they don't see this background of these two entrepreneurs kind of grinding for, for a decade with multiple failures and, you know, one, one small, a small, but good success before starting the, you know, $50 billion company. Uh, same thing for, for Instacart, although Max didn't have that level of success before he had started a company, it was, you know, small tech, uh, like aqua hire by another startup. And, you know, one year after joining that startup, he said, I want to be CEO again. I want to start something again. And that was the, the background behind coming up with the, the idea of Instacart uh, and starting the company. So uh, even yeah. previous failure, even people with previous failure, uh, they were more likely than people who had not gone through starting something. Ali, as I mentioned earlier, you are a partner at uh, DCVC. Uh, you're based in San Mateo. Uh, you know better than I do about the controversy about minorities and women at VCs and, and founders. There are, well, so far we've only covered men, successful, wealthy men, but there are women in your book. There's Neha Narkede, uh, the uh, co-creator of Apache Kafka, and Rachel Carson, the founder and CEO of Guild Education. Um, what do Neha and Rachel, what are they teaching us in your book about 
founders and uh, the, 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 what are the data points that Rachel and Neha bring to, to you and the reader? For sure. And, and I love these, these interviews. Uh, they, they're more, um, it, I, I learn a lot more uh, from their stories and, and how honest they are about it. I think there are two main stories. Uh, with Neha, it's about, again, this, this whole pattern of if you, you start building something and then that may become a billion dollar company. And in this case, this was an open source product, like within LinkedIn, she was working at LinkedIn and she started and created uh, this open source software without making money off of it directly. But then that idea became uh, the idea behind Confluent, which is a you know, multi-billion dollar company that she ended up co-founding. So in, in a lot of cases, it doesn't even need to be, you know, uh, let me start a company right away. You may want to start like an open source project first or a nonprofit, you know, project or site hustle first. And that, that gets some momentum and you, you learn a bunch of things and then it's your second act or third act that becomes uh, successful. And in the case of Rachel, um, you know, a lot of people come to Silicon Valley. I came to Silicon Valley for, you know, obviously all the good reasons that it's here. Although she studied at Stanford and she was living here by purpose, she moved the company to Denver, which is not right. a traditional, you know, startup tech hub. It's not New York or it's not Los Angeles. And the company is obviously very successful now. And she had very interesting and good reasons for moving the company to Denver and, you know, she talks about the story of how that worked out and what was the process of making that decision. Uh, one of the characters in the book who uh, I did know, who's fairly well known, certainly in Silicon Valley, is Tony uh, Fidel, uh, the guy who, who quite literally, I think, invented the, the iPod and the iPhone. Uh, everyone associates Steve Jobs with, uh, with those, but Fidel was the, the genius behind it. Uh, what is it about Fidel that... that um, should help founders and investors make sense of, of, of the world today? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of people that think um, you need to be the first uh, to the market with an idea to succeed. And the data shows 70% of billion dollar companies were not the first people to try out an idea and start, uh, start a company. A lot of ideas are recycled ideas and even Instacart was a recycled version of a company called Webvan that was that had started 12 years before that and, and it kind of failed in the in the dot-com bust. Um, what we learned from from Tony Fidel uh, was what's interesting about this story is that he was involved with a lot of those iterations of, of the same product. Uh, he was involved with a company called General Magic in 1995, which, mm. which built something, which built like an early version of what a smartphone would look like, but because of battery life problems. And touch screens and these kind of stuff that the company failed. He then started the same kind of project in a, in a couple of other corporate type of environments. And it was finally at Apple that, that the product worked and the iPod and the iPhone and it kind of made its way into the you know uh, larger population. A lot of people started using smartphones. And what's basically interesting about this story is that he was involved from the first iteration of a product to the, the, the iteration of the product that made global success. Uh, and he, uh, presumably, companies. he had the skill of actually dealing with Steve Jobs, not, not uh, driving himself mad. Another character in the book who I'm familiar with is Max Levchin, uh, one of the, the PayPal mafia um, behind a, a Russian uh, emigre, behind many founder, many, many startups here. Um, what is it about Levchin that really struck you that, that can teach 
founders uh, about the qualities and and and, and disciplines required to, su- to to successfully uh, build companies of course it's it's the same kind of pattern again i think he says in the book that paypal was his fifth idea and the firm is his second billion dollar company was his ninth idea and there was a lot of companies and ideas in the middle that failed or was a smaller outcomes or was you know kind of big flops so we talk about that you also talk about market expansion and market creation. So in terms of PayPal, PayPal created a new market because it enabled this peer-to-peer uh, digital payment back in the you know, uh, 1999 and 2000-2001 uh, time era. Affirm, which is a, you know, you can, you can, instead of paying by credit card and taking on a loan, uh, you can pay for stuff by taking a loan just right off the internet without needing a credit card. And it's much easier and you don't have to deal with, you know, complex interest rates and APRs. Um, what is interesting about a firm is it expanded the market. So a lot of people who did not use credit before and may, may have not had credit cards before started taking on debt using this system. And that basically expanded the market for using credit. So we uh, talked And about that, of course, has ultimately led to the... The, the, the mania now for crypto, Andreessen Horowitz, as we said at the beginning, their billion-dollar cryptocurrency fund. Another of the PayPal mafia, perhaps the, uh, the mafia boss himself, Peter Thiel, um, extremely notorious character. He was fictionalized in the social network. He's in your book as the real Peter Thiel. A lot of people don't like Thiel for his politics, um, uh, Ali. Uh, you're not focused on politics in their book. But no. um, you believe that technology can make the world a better place, don't you? Um, what is it about Teal that admire that, that, that you admire? What does Teal bring to this particular party? I wanted to get, get the real stories behind some of the you know, investments that, that he's famous for. Uh, especially, I would say, Facebook. You know, the Facebook story, that the social network movie that, you know, um, yeah. it was... It was fictionalized in that movie and we see how, how it happened. It turns out um, the reason he invested in the company was he saw it as a media empire for universities. So at the time that the investment was done and you know the billions was made, his thesis around what, what this company can do is to create a monopoly and own all the media that goes into universities. Obviously, Facebook very soon expanded right out of universities. So it's, it's one part that, you know, how fast ideas can just change and, and a lot of things can, you know, take on a different shape and how, you know, investors need to be open-minded about the type of markets that things can expand. Like same story of Uber. Uber started the luxury uh, kind of black car uh, types of cars. And a lot of investors did not invest in that company in the early stage, but Uber ended up, you know, creating this uh, other form, which was, you know, not luxury, it was, you know, everybody in a peer-to-peer kind of ride-sharing and ride-hailing. Uber, Ali, is is extremely controversial. A lot of people think it's creating this underclass, this new precariat. Peter Thiel, of course, is very controversial. Silicon Valley and tech's biggest backer of Donald Trump. Another of the controversial characters that you cover in the book is Keith Raboy, an entrepreneur, investor, contrarian. He is a contrarian and uh, certainly a very controversial contrarian. Uh, what does Raboy teach us? Another of Peter Thiel's uh, mafia. Uh, they were together at Stanford Law School. Correct. Another, uh, shall we say, right-wing venture capitalist. 
So I think the stories that, that I learned from Keith, uh, from the stories of him, his investments uh, is, you know, a lot of a lot of people from that group and a lot of friends uh, from that community of, you know, people they knew when they were in college and when they had started PayPal, um, they went on to start new companies in, in the kind of 2004, 2005, 2006 era. And that was that was not a those times were not like these times, which, you know, a lot of companies get funded and there's so much capital. There's not that many, you know, there wasn't that much funding happening at the time. And there wasn't that many categories of tech startups becoming large and, and uh, succeeding big. But, you know, it was at the time that a lot of uh, that Raboy and a lot of his friends had the money, obviously, from the exit and had the courage to invest that money into their friends that were starting different kind of companies. Some of those obviously failed, but some of them became the larger uh, outcomes like uh, Yelp and other kind of companies uh, that, that they end up investing in. And obviously we talk about, you know, the, the importance of the, the pitch and, you know, how, how uh, entrepreneurs should look at uh, fundraising and how important is or is not uh, storytelling or differentiation. Um, I think one of the things that he's more famous for saying, and he talks about the book is, is the same thing that the, also the data showed about, uh, you know, industry experience that you don't necessarily need to have data uh, experience in that same industry. And about 70% of founders of the, these billion dollar companies did not come from that specific industry. They had an average of 11 years of work experience. They had started companies before, they had worked at large companies before, but uh, they may not have necessarily come from that industry. But also the data showed it's not like they are more like, if you don't have experience, you're more likely to succeed. Like Ali, uh, l- 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 we need to finish now, but I want to, uh, not everyone will be familiar with all the people in the in the book, but they will be familiar with the products. Not everyone will know, for example, who Eric S. Yuan is, but everyone knows his baby, Zoom. We're living uh, in the days of Zoom, in the age of Zoom. What does Eric Yuan and the, the Zoom story teach us finally? And then we'll wrap up. Of course, Eric is one of the most humble CEOs of these you know, massive decabillion dollar companies I've, I've ever had a pleasure of kind of talking with. The main thing that, that I'm talking in that chapter is competition is not a bad thing. I guess a lot of people think, you know, if you have competition, you're dead. Zoom had a lot of competition from strong companies. There was Cisco, Cisco WebEx, and there was uh, Skype and Microsoft. There was a lot of massive big companies that were competing. But, but you know, we are using Zoom. Most of us are using Zoom these days. And how Zoom became, became to become a strong player. And obviously, the, the data shows that if you're, if you're in that situation, competing with these large, old companies, you're actually not less likely to succeed. You're more likely to succeed rather than copying another startup that has raised, you know, 20 millions of million dollars of funding from VCs and just uh, being a copycat. That is not likely to succeed. But if you are going after these large players that, you know, the market exists, but you are more passionate, you will focus, you will create best team and you will focus on the customers. You're actually more likely to win in, in that kind of competitive environment than, than the incumbents. Yeah, Ali, let, let's go back finally to um, Chuck. Palaniuk, there are only patterns, patterns on top of patterns, a wonderful beginning to your book. One pattern that summarizes your book, Super Founders, what data reveals about billion-dollar startups, this book which um, has, uh, as your your publisher claims, 30,000 data points, whatever those are. Um, One single pattern that for you 
is the real takeaway to this book, very briefly? A lot of things don't matter except the hustle, except you're willing to go on and create projects, create value, sell something online. And they may be small, they may be failures, but that hustle of creating value and selling and generating revenue online or through whatever means, that's the best preparation for getting the resources and learning things to start a billion dollar company eventually. The hustle is everything, man. Ali Tamaseb, uh, the author of Super Founders, what data reveals about billion dollar startups, as well as being a VC, a super hustler uh, and a super hustle uh, articulation of, 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 of what uh, it, it takes to build successful companies. Uh, people need to read your new book. Uh, as I said, Ali, it's, it's an, a really interesting read. Lots of characters in the book who I didn't even cover. So full of interesting data points. Uh, in, in, you're in San Mateo in these strange times in late April 2021, where we're all still locked inside, Ali. Anything else people should be reading in addition to your book, Super Founders? Of course, I mean, I, I have a lot of books behind me and I mostly listen to audiobooks. but one thing I could probably point people towards is Brad Stone uh, wrote this book about uh, Amazon uh, called The Everything Store. And I think he has a new book coming as well. Uh, I think Amazon is a very interesting company and Jeff Bezos is an interesting character to study. Yeah, uh, uh, Jeff, um, uh, Stone has, um, has been on the show before and he will be on in a couple of weeks to talk about his new book, Amazon Unbound, which is about... Uh, the most super founder of all, Jeff Bezos, uh, Ali Tamaseb, author of Super Founders. Honored to have you on the show. We're going to have lunch in San Francisco at some point when this insanity sure. is over. And uh, I will look forward to having you back on the show in the not too distant future to talk more patterns, data sets, and billion dollar companies. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Andrew.